Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, <laughs> welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. Sometimes I don't I know your if host. you're saying hello to me or like to the show, <laughs> so I just respond. Okay, I think we're going to need to start over. <laughs> no, let's leave it. Let's leave it. <laughs> um, this is the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast, and I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host Darcy with me as usual. Darcy, how you doing? I'm drinking a very big glass of wine. That's how I I'm see doing. That. Yeah. <laughs> Had an d- unfortunate hair appointment today. At least it was a color mess up and not a length mess up. That would have been horrible. Things not escalated like cutting fast my... over there. In yeah, the, I don't like cutting my hair. Area. But... <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah. not great. I'm well, a little upset. I mean, she showed me a picture of what she asked for. She showed me a picture of what she got. It looks like two different things. Completely yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, who among us has not had this happen. I mean, if you have, raise your hand. Okay, everyone. Yeah. Everyone has had this happen at some point or another. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel your pain. Um, definitely have had moments where it was like, what in that? Like, I had one where I asked for subtle highlights, like mm-hmm. blonde highlights, and literally my hair started coming mm. off in handfuls because she didn't know what she was doing and oh. she ble- over bleached it or over processed it that is my actual nightmare it. and it was just like oh my god <laughs> coming out and it was like oh my god what is going yeah. on yeah so yeah that's what happens when you go to a new person and don't really Yelp them or check out their See, reviews or I've been going to this place since I've been here at school Ruh-roh. and I had this person once before the last time I got it colored and she did it it was like before winter or maybe like in the fall and she did it like like caramel color like I want my hair to like my hair is very dark brown naturally and I wanted it to be like I've always wanted to be a redhead so like I've kind of been doing like the ombre balayage deal Mm-hmm. And the first time I had it done was by somebody else there, and I loved it. It was amazing. And then I went back, and she did she did it like a caramel color. She was like, "It's like perfect for winter." And I'm like, "Whatever. I have like the overtone conditioner. I'll just use that." Well, she didn't bleach it enough that time, so I'm like, "I need to go back this time and get it like bleached so that it, it can be like the color I want it." When she dyes it red, and then she like just went and dyed it like not natural hair color red, like. like red red like dark yeah like merlot red yes it's like it's got purple tones to it and she looked at me like i was crazy when i was like it looks a little more purple than what i thought and she was like it's definitely fire yeah. engine red and i'm like yeah no, well fire engine yeah. red's not what i asked for so it's not what i wanted what do we do now yeah uh yeah so anyway so don't i didn't say her. anything and i just paid her don't and have her work and, anymore <laughs> and, le- and left <laughs> so Oof, and now i'm just drinking rough. a big glass of wine Drink it out, girl. Drink it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't I just, advocate for alcoholism, but sometimes you've got to drink it out. I needed to talk to a glass of wine. I already exercised, too. And I need to talk to a glass of wine about this. And my friend's brother um, and sister-in-law actually are both hairstylists. So when I'm in Birmingham this weekend, I'm going to see if they, they can fix it. Because she sent them pictures, and they were like, how did, how did she get there from what you asked for? Yeah. I, so. I, I couldn't, I couldn't personally myself, I couldn't understand it either. So, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Okay. Um, Displeased. Next uh, <laughs> topic for main topic for the day. Are we going to jump right in? Yeah, let's do it. So this is a pretty well-known mystery, I think, in like the true crime circles. And I wanted to talk about it because even I like, I know the whole story almost by heart, but even I missed that the news that it actually may have been solved recently. Oh. So we're going to talk about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. So if you are unfamiliar, this is an event involving an unexplained death of nine hikers in Russia or in the Soviet Union back in 1959. So this area is in the Ural Mountains, which is like... A mountain pass that kind of divides um, what's like known as European Russia. So it's like where Moscow and St. Petersburg and all that stuff is like in Western Russia divides the Ural Mountains divide Western Russia from like Eastern Russia. So like kind of the dividing line between like Europe and Asia. Okay. Um, And it didn't really have a name until this. um, And it became known as the Dyatlov Pass. 
And the major city in this area where this this mountain range is, the major inhabited city, is mm. Ekaterinburg, which is actually where the last czar, Nicholas II, and his family were executed back in 1917. So, like, okay. a little bit of, like, history, too, to this area. All right. So, this hiking group consisted of mostly students at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, and it was led by 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov. So that's why it gets the name Dyatlov Pass. Okay. So Igor is an engineering student at the university, and he's an experienced hiker and an experienced outdoorsman, and he had led other, like, winter excursions in the past. And so in 1958, he began to plan a 16-day cross-country skiing trip across the Urals. And I don't know if you're familiar with, like, the exercise of cross-country skiing. Oh, my God, it's, it's intense. Yes, it's, like the absolute most difficult endurance exercise you can do. So like yeah. in 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 kinesiology, which is like what my background is in, there's a test called the VO2 max test, which basically measures the volume of oxygen that you um, breathe in and the, and how much oxygen you breathe out and basically does a calculation of like how much how how efficient your body is at turning that oxygen into glycogen for your muscles. And it's a test of endurance. So it's a max right. test. So basically, you just run on a treadmill at increasing speeds or inclines until you can't run anymore, um, mm-hmm. all while you're wearing, like, this mask. So if you've seen, like, the Gatorade commercial, that's what that test is. Anyway. Yeah. The cross-country skiers are known to have, like, the highest VO2 maxes in the world. Like, the world. So if you want an idea of, like, numbers for this, Lance Armstrong, like, back in his heyday, was in the 70s. Um, he was doping at the time, but he was still in the 70s. Um, the Navy SEALs I used to work with were in like the 40s to 40 to 65 ish. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm probably in the 30s because I'm not a very good Yikes. endurance person. Cross country skiers have been measured in the high 90s. Okay. So, like, so this you is. You gotta be like intensely fit. Yeah. So, like, these are not amateurs going out there, is kind of the point that I'm talking about. So, this expedition is a big deal because it's also just a year after the Soviets launched Sputnik. And they won the space race, right? So they were the first into space. And this is this event, this winter expedition across the Urals is probably going to be used as some kind of big propaganda feat too, right? Okay. Look at our students. This, you know, we have the Soviet We're spirit. superior in every yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's basically like, what is that, Rocky Four or Three when yes. he's fighting the Russian? Yes. Like, it's kind of like that, right? So... Dyatlov's group is going to traverse 200 miles of this route that no one had traveled yet before to that point. And so to go with him, he recruits eight more friends from his school. Some are current students, some are former students. They are all experienced outdoorsmen and women. So quickly, we will go over the members of the group. And I apologize for my pronunciation of Russian names, but I'm doing my best. What? You're not a Russian language specialist? I I thought you were. I kind of wish I was. I do want to learn Russian. But so in addition to Igor Dyatlov, you have Georgi Krivonishenko. He was a nuclear engineer. You have Rustem Slobodin, Nikolai Thibault-Brignolis, who is French, actually, Yuri Yudin, Yuri Doroshenko, Alexander Kolvatov, and Lyuda, or some sources have her name as Lyudmila Dubinina. She's the only woman. So Lyudmila is the youngest member of the group, and she's just 20, um, but she's a track athlete. And according to The New Yorker, which is where I got a lot of this information, on a previous winter adventure, she was accidentally shot by a hunter. What? And managed to survive after a 50-mile journey back to civilization. Good Lord. So this is a she's group a little of bit intense, intense people. Yeah. And a few days before the group left to go on their adventure, they added another member who was 37-year-old Simeon Zolotaryov who was a World okay. War II veteran. Okay. Dang. So the group left Ekaterinburg on January 23rd, and they arrive in Vijay, which is the northernmost inhabited settlement. And from here on, we only have the details of their journey because they kept a communal journal. And a communal some also, journal? Yeah. And some of them also That's kept weird. individual journals. Um, I'm thinking because, like, this was a kind of like a sponsored trip that they had to keep something is my guess okay um but so they also some of them kept individual journals and we know at least five of them had their own cameras 
Okay. So there are some pictures of the group. So on January 27th, Yuri Yudin actually ends up having to turn back because he's having some knee and joint pain. And he has sciatica, which is an inflammation of that really big nerve in the back of your leg. And, you know, all of those issues are going to be made worse by the cold. So right. he's unable to continue on the journey. So he turns back. And because Igor Dyatlov had to ask permission from, like, the university sports club, which I'm guessing is, like, the regional communist body, um, because he had to get permission from them to go on this trip, he was supposed to send a telegram to them, back to them when they returned to Vijay on February 12th. So that was, like, the estimated time they were going to return. So, like, I guess the, the idea, the route for this trip was they were going to leave Vijay go over this pass and come back and then come back to Vijay and then send the telegram. Okay. So on January 23rd, the group gets to a wooded area and they leave their surplus food and supplies to be used on their return trip. So they don't want to carry all that stuff be weighed down by it. On February 1, they start their hike and they start climbing through the pass. But they end up getting caught in a snowstorm and they lose their direction and they actually end up traveling further west off their route than they intended to go. And they end up near this mountain called Kolat Siok. Okay. Which actually means dead mountain in the local language. Mm-hmm. So it's not a great sign. Getting ominous. No. So they realize they're off route, but rather than hike back down the mountain, they decide to camp on the slope for the night. So like... In mountain climbing, like, you need to stay acclimated acclimated to the altitude. So, like, I don't know if that's why they didn't want to go back down. Or I don't really know why they decided to stay on the side of this mountain. But that's why they decided to camp for the night. So, that's kind of the last we know about them. And on February 12th, comes and goes. And there's no telegram from Igor. And at first, everybody just assumes that they slowed down due to the weather. Because when Yuri Yudin came back... Dyatlov had told him he thought the trip would take longer than anticipated. So Mm -hmm. they're like, well, this is no big deal. He missed the January 12 telegram. He'll he'll write us in a couple days. And it's 1959. Like, that's kind of the only way they know how to get in touch with him. Yeah. When they still hadn't heard anything a few days later, though, parents started calling. So they're calling the university. They're calling, like, the local authorities, the communist, you know, regional authority, whatever. And by February 20th, they launch a search party. So, again, remember, this is 1959 in the Soviet Union. So, in addition to the student volunteers coming from the university, they also had prison guards from, like, the local gulag. Oh. Yeah. So, they're also, I mean, they didn't use prisoners, to my knowledge. But, you know, just keep in mind, this is a, there's a gulag nearby kind of a thing. Um, and they also got the military and police involved, and they launched um, helicopters and planes to help search. Okay. So on February 25th, the student, research, the student searchers found some ski tracks, and they follow those. And the next day, they find the tent. Oh. So the tent is partially collapsed and buried in snow, and there are slash marks throughout it. And they look like intentional. And when they Mm -hmm. dig the tent out, they find nobody inside. And so the weird thing is, for the tent to be in such disarray, all the group's belongings were, like, very neatly organized within the tent. So, like, their boots and axes and equipment were, like, lined up on one side of the door. They had food laid out like they were about to eat. There was a stack of wood for the heating stove. And they had, like, the group's clothes and their cameras and journals. Like, so there was nothing, like disorganized within the tent itself it's just the actual tent outside of the tent was like under snow a little bit of snow okay so they keep looking at about a hundred feet downhill they see some very distinct footprints of either eight or nine people walking toward the tree line and it says they could tell it was a walking pace and not a running pace and i'm guessing that's because of like the distance covered between steps walking pace you typically Mm. cover less ground than if you're running Right. Um, They also said that almost all the footprints were from either stockinged feet or bare feet. And one person, person they said, seemed to be wearing a single ski boot. So, like, one person had one shoe on, and that's it. That's Um, weird. 
Yeah. So they follow the the prints for about 600 to 700 yards, and then they vanish in the tree line. So the following morning, they find the bodies of Krivonashchinko, Krivonashchinko, and Doroshchinko under a tree at the edge of the forest. So they're lying next to a fire that had gone out, and they're only wearing their underwear. What? And about 15 feet up the tree, there were, like, broken branches. And on the trunk mm-hmm. of the tree, there were, like, bits of clothing and, like, skin that had been, like, oh. cut on the trunk of the tree. Yikes. As if they had tried to climb the tree. Mm. So later that same day, the search party finds the bodies of Dyatlov, Komorgorova, and Slobodin. And they all died in poses suggesting they were trying to return to the tent. Oh. Um, and Dyatlov and Kolmogorova had tightly clenched fists. So, like, nobody died like a peaceful death, basically. Yikes. So after they find the first five bodies, they immediately open up a legal, legal inquest, right? And they autopsy mm-hmm. those bodies. So Krivonishchenko had frostbite on his fingers, but he also had third-degree burns on his leg and his foot. Oh. And there was also a piece of skin uh. found in his mouth that he had bitten off of his own hand. No. No. Dorshinko had burned hair on one side of his head, and he had a charred, sho- charred sock. All five of the bodies had bruises, abrasions, and scratches and cuts, but the medical examiner found no injuries that would have caused their deaths. So he concluded that these five died of hypothermia. So Slobodin had a small skull fracture, but the medical examiner didn't believe it to be a fatal injury. So it doesn't say where on the skull was it was fractured, like what bone of the skull was fractured. And mm-hmm. depending on which bone it is, like the bone in the back of your head is really, really thick. That would take a lot of force to, to fracture. But like the yeah. frontal bone or like maybe the side bones don't take as much. So I don't know where that that fracture was. But either way, it wasn't enough to be fatal. Okay. So they helicoptered the tent and the equipment out to a local police station. And they set it up there to kind of like recreate the scene. And that's when a seamstress who was just, like, at the police station to do uniform alterations, she Uh noted that the tent, the slash marks on the tent appeared to be made from the inside. So what that means is a group of experienced hikers and skiers deliberately cut cut themselves out of their tent and went into the sub-zero temperatures half-dressed. And they were not... Which doesn't make sense. Right, and there was not some. There wasn't an emergency because they appeared to be walking away. So, like, what's going on? They weren't running from right. anything. So, it takes more than two months to find the remaining four members of the group, and they're actually found in a ravine further into the woods than where the first five had been found. So, three hmm. of them are dressed better than the fourth, and there's signs that like the clothing of the one who had died first, like they had removed it, that person's clothing and like. Put, put it on themselves to keep warm. Yeah. Which, that makes sense, right? So, autopsies yeah. of this group, this is where it gets hinky. Autopsies of this group uncovered catastrophic blunt force injuries to three of the four. So, the French guy, his skull was so severely fractured that fragments of his skull were driven into his brain. Oh, my God. Um, Zolotarov and Lyudmila, their chests were both crushed and they had multiple broken ribs and Lyudmila also suffered a mass, massive hemorrhage in the right ventricle of her heart. Wow. So the medical examiner compared her injuries to those that he would see like in a high-speed car accident. Wow. That's how bad it was. So yeah. none of the bodies had penetrating wounds though. So, like, it wasn't like they had been, like, stabbed or beaten or anything like that. No penetrating wounds. But Zolotaryov's was missing his eyes, and Lyudmila's eyes, tongue, and part of her upper lip were missing. Oh, my God. A forensic expert would later guess that this was likely postmortem and probably caused by, like, scavengers in the area, which is gross, but, like, 
not yeah. uncommon, right? Seriously. So they open up a homicide investigation. And a radiology expert testified that some of the articles of clothing emitted unnaturally high levels of radiation. And again, wow. 1959 in the Soviet Union. Yeah. So then in May of that same year of 1959, the investigation was closed. And okay. the homicide investigator basically said it was his job to determine whether a homicide occurred and not to determine the cause of death. And since he concluded that there was no evidence of homicide, his job was done. All set. It was like later days, guys. Yep. His report stated that it should be concluded that the cause of the hiker's demise was an overwhelming force, which they were not able to overcome. So, like, could you be more ominous? Like, it so- that sounds paranormal. Right. So, the investigative files, photographs, and journals were sent to a secret archive, and the area of the Dyatlov Pass where they died was closed off to skiers and hikers for years. They wouldn't let anybody go there. So, naturally... Mm people start speculating. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so some people originally thought that, like, the aboriginal population in the area, the Manzai, had attacked the group, but the forensic expert basically said there's no way that the trauma to the three could have been caused by humans because while the skeletal injuries were really severe, there was no soft tissue injury, basically. Yeah. So, like, if somebody were to hit you with, even if it was, like, a blunt object, it would still break the skin, and there was no evidence of that. Okay. So, so other speculation, because of the radiology uh, expert, the speculation included, like, a nuclear event that was covered up by the Soviet Union. And this was kind of given more weight because a 12-year-old boy who attended some of the funerals, like, he lived in the area, and I guess he just attended some of the funerals, which seems weird, but... Yeah. Whatever. Um, He said that some of the bodies had, like, a deep brown tan. What? Yeah, and another a group deep of hikers. Brown tan. Yeah, like they had been exposed to like a very strong light source. And some uh, there was another group of hikers. They were like fifty kilometers away, and they were that same night that of the Dyatlov Pass incident. And they said that they observed strange orange spheres in the sky. Oh yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, and so and these sightings were apparently happening like throughout the month of February and March of that year, and they were seen by numerous witnesses, including the meteorology service and the military. So like, this wasn't just this one group saying this. Like this was confirmed. It's documented that the there were weird orange spheres in the sky around this time. And one of the investigators came out in 1990, which is of course after the Soviet Union had collapsed. And he Mm -hmm. says that they had gotten reports of the orange spheres at the time, but he had been ordered from high-ranking communist officials to dismiss the claim. Sure. And that his original investigation found trees with unusual burn marks indicative of... What? Did you say something? No. Oh, it's like a weird hiccup noise or something. Okay. And... But, but, but he said in his, his original investigation found trees with unusual burn marks indicative of some kind of heat ray or a pow- powerful force whose nature is completely unknown, in parentheses, to us at least, that acted selectively on the specific objects. Wow. So, like, some That's force weird. came and it didn't, like, it didn't decimate the area. It just, like, burned some trees and it killed these people in, like, horrific ways is basically what he's saying. And we don't know what it is. He also kept some of the pictures from Krivonoschenko's camera, and the last picture on that camera taken shows flares and streaks of light against a black background. It's like, I don't know if there's anybody in that picture, but in the background, at least, there's, like, flares and streaks of light going on. So they think that maybe somebody, like, saw that this was going on and tried to document it, this whatever activity it Mm -hmm. was that caused this. Yeah, and then they were murdered because... Soviet Union. That's not completely right. out of the realm of like possibility, other than like the weird light phenomenon. Like it's just it's not yeah. random that people disappear in the Soviet Union in like the early to mid fifties. So the twelve year old boy who went to the funeral like became fascinated by this whole thing, and he still lives in the area. And he actually leads tours to like the Dyatlov Pass, hmm. and he says that in general Russians believe one of two theories. 
First theory is that the hikers accidentally stumbled across an area where some secret weapons were being tested. Okay. And the second theory is that the party was killed by mercenaries, likely American spies. Oh, sure. Because the <laughs> Americans were the cause of everything bad in Russia for Well, according ever. to the propaganda. Yeah. And some truth, but, you know, in general, propaganda I mean, was, yeah. So, specifically... But why would they want to do this to the... What would be the motivation for doing ah, this to this... I'm so glad you asked. Of- so, they have an answer for that one, too. So, specifically for the second theory, Zolotaryov, who was the 37-year-old who joined the mm-hmm. expedition late, which is all, always suspicious... Um, mm-hmm. He was a KGB agent, apparently. Sure, sure. And he and two other KGB agents who were already members of this group were to meet with a group of CIA operatives in this Dyatlov Pass area, and they were going to deliver some deliberately false information. So, like, they were going to, like, double. is this just a theory, or yeah. is this actually... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Okay. This, is just, this, is just, this is just a theory. Okay. So then, basically, so they're going to deliver this deliberately false information. They're going to be like, yeah, we'll spy for you, CIA, but haha, here's fake info, basically. The old switcheroo, mm. if you will. Sure. Well, apparently the CIA found this out, and they killed them, and then they set the scene. Hmm. Problem, though, is, like, if they found the footprints for the people leaving the scene, they didn't find any other footprints around there. So, like, I don't know how you set that scene and then cover up your footprints in the snow. But the CIA does, and that's what's important. But, again, that's just theory. Okay. So, uh, there's also a theory, and this is probably one that, like, a lot of people will get a kick out of, um, that they were killed by a Yeti. So the last picture on the French guy's camera shows a dark figure walking through the forest. And it's like in the article, it's described as like he was hunched over and like skulking. And you can't see any facial pictures, facial features. So people are like, it's a Yeti. But I think it's also, well, the camera (laughs) quality in 1959, like from what I understand, the picture like when you look at it through like a 2021 lens, it pretty clearly shows like it's just another member of the group. It's just like a bad picture. So what about something like less nefarious? Is there a possible like logical explanation for this? So like maybe they died from carbon monoxide poisoning from the heater that they had inside their tent. Well, they ran toxicology tests and the autopsy ruled that out. Okay. So maybe it was, like, an avalanche that, like, struck the tent and caused the massive blunt injuries to, like, the three of them. And they forced the rest of them to leave, like, in a rush, right? hmm So the problem with that is the injuries to the three were so massive that they would not have been able to, like, leave the tent under their own power. And the footprints clearly showed eight or nine of them leaving and, like, not running. They were walking. So it probably wasn't... They probably were not injured in the tent and there's also no evidence at the scene of an avalanche like there's no debris and a ski pole that was they were actually using to like hold up the front of the tent was still standing so like certainly that would have been knocked over in an avalanche right and like they did like the math of like the angle of the slope and this that and the other and basically they they found that the slope wasn't steep enough to even cause an avalanche yeah so Mm what happened and it's kind of like the big mystery like it's that's been the mystery ever since and like i think the prevailing theory is some kind of nuclear accident because of the orange spheres thing and that they're pretty unexplained there's never been an explanation to that when i heard about this that's kind of what i thought it was like some kind of a nuclear thing or like um what are those called uh, like a, when a, a meteor or something mm-hmm. like that is what I thought it was when I heard about this. Well, and it's easy to kind of like, our, like when, when weird things happen that we can't make sense of, our brain tries to make sense of things. And that's how you get like conspiracies because like it has to be some wild, crazy thing that like ticks off all these boxes. It can't be something mundane. And also it's the Soviet Union in like 1959 and we've all learned that like they were just really bad. Like, no bones about it. It was definitely a nuclear accident that they just covered up because they covered up. They tried to cover up Chernobyl, right? And that was yeah. 30 years yeah. later. So in 2019, a prosecutor in Ekaterinburg was put in charge of the investigation. 
So I guess they reopened the investigation or it was never actually closed. Either way, they put an official prosecutor in charge of this investigation. Okay. And he organizes a winter expedition to the site and he uses measurements and he looks at the pictures that were taken back in 1959 and he finds out that the campsite where the hackers actually stayed was several hundred hundred feet higher on the slope than they originally thought. So they were actually at a steeper location. Mm. And looking through the historical data, they were able to determine that the conditions on the side of that mountain were way worse than what they previously thought. So they actually believe that the hikers got caught on the side of the mountain in winds up to 65 miles per hour and temperatures around negative 30 Fahrenheit. Ah. Yeah. So not great. So in July of 2020, this prosecutor holds a press conference where he announces that he's determined the cause of death of the hikers. It's a phenomenon called a slab avalanche. Mm. And it's actually really interesting when I started looking into this because there's two engineers in Switzerland who actually like published a peer-reviewed paper in a journal about this phenomenon and explaining the Dyatlov passes in it. It's open source, so like you can look it up and read it for yourself. Um, and basically what happens is um, the, the group decided to camp for the night and they cut into the snow at like right angles to make like a shelter so they could be protected from the wind. Mm-hmm. But when they did that, they, they, they knocked loose. A, they started to not like dislodge like a big slab they of snow. weakened the snow underneath. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Well, they weakened the snow above them, like higher yes. on the mountain. And it didn't dislodge immediately and cover them. But as the storm continued on and there's 65 miles per hour winds, it's adding more and more loading to the snow. And yeah. so that dislodges it loose. So they think that there's this guy who, in Colorado. He has a PhD in the physics of heat and mass transfer in snow, which is apparently okay. a thing. And he said that if a three-foot slab slid over the tent, it would cover them with about a thousand pounds of force. Each individual body with a thousand pounds of force. Just a three foot slab. That's yep. all. So it doesn't even need wow. to be a whole, like a big avalanche. And he said, like, if it were just like this slab that was not loose, you wouldn't, you wouldn't find evidence of it 25 days later. Yeah, no, for sure. So he, so basically that much weight would have prevented them from getting any of their clothing and they would have had to cut their way out of the tent and whatever they were wearing. So, like, some yeah. of them were wearing clothes. One guy had one shoe on, apparently, or was in the middle of putting mm-hmm. on a shoe. Some of them were in underwear, and they just had to leave. So they think, yeah. because this, like, slab of snow has slid over their tent, they think a big avalanche is coming. So oh. they, they head into the tree line where, the, where they would be protected, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But by the time they get there and they wait it out, realizing that there's no avalanche coming, it's dark, and they can't find their way back. Oh. So this is why they, this is when they think the group separates. So some of them try and take shelter in the woods and some of them try and go back. And that's where they think that the, the Krivish, Krivish, Krivish he, um, he and, uh, uh, Doroshenko, they were the ones that were found by like the fire, like that had been extinguished Mm -hmm. and, Krivonashenko had frostbite on his hands, but also third-degree burns. So whatever fire they built was not warm enough to keep them alive. But as they got closer and closer and closer to try and stay alive, they ended up with third-degree burns and singed hair. So they died of hypothermia? Those two did. Okay. And they think that, because he was also the one who bit the chunk out of his hand, they think that was either like hypothermic delirium or... Maybe he was trying to see if he could feel anything in his hand because his hand had frostbite. So, like, you know, like, when you go to the dentist and, like, your cheek's numb and you, like, try and bite it and you're like, did I feel this? No, no. But, like, way worse. Yeah. So they they don't know, but they think it could be one of those two things. So the two most poorly dressed hikers obviously were the ones that died first. And they think that the other ones took their clothes to keep themselves warm because some of them were wearing, like, the other's clothing, right? So they think, like I said, they think the group split up and Dyatlov, Slobodin, and Kolmorgorova were trying to make it back to the tent, but they couldn't. And that's why they, they died. That's why they say they looked like they died on their way back to the tent and they had clenched fists. 
The other group went further into the woods for more shelter. So they think these other four tried to build like a snow den. Mm -hmm. But the area they did this, they didn't know, was over a stream that never freezes. And so the stream of running water is just running underneath where they built the snow den. And it eventually caused like a hollow tunnel. And so their snow den collapsed. And they fell like 10 to 15 feet into... The uh, uh, they fell um, into the stream bed, which was like rocky, and then they were also covered by ten to fifteen feet of snow, which oh caused the traumatic chest injuries. This is bonkers. I didn't hear about that part. Yeah, and that, this just ha- like this just came out. So this this all came out in an article in the New Yorker like last week. But this all yeah, came out like... I heard about like, the slab thing. Yeah. I heard about, you know, that part of it, but I didn't hear about the theories about the actual individual hikers and where they went. So the two Swiss engineers who published the article, they think that the slab avalanche was enough to cause the injuries, to the, like the chest injuries, but that doesn't mm-hmm. explain how they would have walked out under their own volition of the tent. So like yeah. that doesn't... So this other engineer, this one from Colorado... And the prosecutor, I think it may actually be the prosecutor that thinks that it was when, like, he's, he's coming up with all these explanations of they split up, they tried to build a fire, some tried to build a snow den, like, he's coming up with those explanations. And th- those make sense to me. I mean, they make complete sense to me. Yeah. The radiation, though, is still a question. So, but it might actually have a simpler explanation than, like, what we're just, like, trained to think. The Krivonoshenko guy worked at a facility that in 1957 had what was considered the world's worst nuclear accident at the time. This was before Chernobyl and Fukushima. Yeah. So he worked at this nuclear um, plant and that had a massive radiation explosion and he was involved in the cleanup. And another person in this group actually came from the village that was within this contamination zone. Uh Uh-huh. So they think that so, the people were just contaminated from their work yeah. and where they lived. So, I mean, the thing is that and if they had a lot of it on them, on their clothing and on them as a person, they could potentially transfer it on to other people. And then if somebody wore their clothes, yep. they're going to have it on them, too. That kind of a thing. So yep. I can see that being a lot. See our Karen Silkwood episode for that discussion, right? Yes. Yes. So with that, the prosecutor's like, Boom. Done. Solved it. I'm amazing. And the case is considered <laughs> considered officially closed. And you'd think Nothing that'd be the end. Nothing nefarious happened. Yeah. Bye. So okay. it, to me, like, this is where the thing of, like, where you and I had the conversation of, like, conspiracy theories. Because to me, this, like, explanation checks all the boxes. It logically explains all the deaths and all the evidence. Mm-hmm. But? But... Family members of the dead and the Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation don't buy it. Because? They sent a letter to the prosecutor general declaring that, in their view, the deaths were caused by the atmospheric release of a powerful toxic substance when a secret weapons test went wrong. Hmm. So they're still thinking that it is this secret nuclear weapons test that went wrong in the Ural Mountains and... That's responsible for the deaths. What do you think? Oh, I think it's the explanation we just gave. It's like backed by the PhDs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's, I mean, so the Dyatlov Pass is like a very, it's a really popular tourist destination now. And you can hike there and you can ski there and all of that. And there's a memorial to, in the area where the camp was. Um, mm-hmm. And people like to go and they like take their own measurements and they take their own photos. And they're like, I'm going to solve it. But like, yeah. I'm sticking already, with the PhD. It's already solved, people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's done. I'm sorry. You just, you tell me a guy has a PhD in heat and snow movement or whatever it was. And I'm going to be like, mm-hmm. well, he obviously knows the answer. Just uh, the, the authority that comes with that. Just sit. Like, I'm convinced that that is what happened. It makes complete sense to me. But it's fascinating because yeah. in hindsight, it kind of seems obvious. Mm hmm. But also, like, I'd never heard of a slab avalanche before. So, like, I, it's not like, something I would have come I thought with. it was some sort of an avalanche thing. I yeah. always did. Um, and whether that was caused by, you know, a weapons testing, whether it was caused by weather, whether mm-hmm. it was caused by a, me- a meteor, whether it was co- whatever. 
I, I just thought it was an avalanche. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's pictures that looks like, I mean, snow clearly moved over the tent. Like, it's a lot of snow that's over the tent. It's just, it's not enough to, like, completely bury the tent to where, like, you couldn't get out of it. And you can still kind yeah. of see the tent. Like, there's pictures of it and stuff. Like, they're all black and white. But, but we'll post those pictures. But it's just, it's one of those things where it's kind of like you don't, in some way, you don't want the mystery to be solved because it's a lot less interesting Yeah. Now. Yeah. I always thought that, you know, it had some elements that could be kind of supernatural, of paranormal. but now it doesn't sound at all. I know. I ruined the fun, didn't I? My supernatural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is my job. I'm here to suck the supernatural. To debunk it. Yes. At all possible opportunities. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't believe in it. It scares me too, <laughs> even though I don't believe yeah. in it. So I'm yeah. here to debunk it. Okay, so um, so that's the deal. What's the, Are you a skier? I've been skiing are snow, exactly are you a once. Snow person? I was like eleven. Uh huh. So would you go to Dyatlov Pass? Is that a thing that you would do? If I could physically do it, yeah, I would go. I don't know that I could physically do it. Yeah, I'm not big on snow. I'd ski, I ski. I don't mind snow. I don't. I don't really like being cold. I want to do the other thing. I want to do, although it's apparently like super dangerous which is going to sound stupid when you hear what I'm talking about, is the, um, the Into the Wild bus. You can still... Well, actually, they just removed the bus, but you can still go to the area. That's sad. That is the saddest movie. Like, I hate that. I hate watching it because it just depresses really? me. Oh, I love that movie. he didn't need to die. It was so sad. He didn't like, need to die. Very sad. And the book is really good, too. Stupid way to die. Like, really? Really? He didn't have the resources. No. To be in so. Fairbanks, Alaska. But like, Which is I, where I, my mom I wanna, lives. <laughs> I want to go, like, I mean, they did, they did remove the bus, but, like, I used to want to go to the bus. And, like, people would go and, like, leave, like, canned food and, like, non-perishables there mm-hmm. in case somebody got stuck there again, which I always thought was really awesome. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, go watch that movie, Into the Wild. Yes. It's really, really interesting. This gentleman went into the wilderness to kind of rough it and live off the grid, ended up, you know, basically. Completely unprepared. Poised- poisoning himself so no that's Spoiler actually not alert. true that was a that was a make him up by the movie he just ended up starving to death yeah life. basically so in real life he starved to death yeah. because he wasn't prepared to live in the freaking alaskan wilderness yeah. through the entire it's it's freaking cold as hell there my mom lives I in alaska it. yeah it's like you can't go outside for more than 10 minutes before your eyelashes and he did not have together. like winter clothes he was from like North Carolina or South Carolina went to college in Georgia, like was not prepared to rough it in. It's bad. It's yeah. really, really bad. So unless you have like a lot of fuel and a lot of clothing and things to stay warm and food, you are, you're going to die. Yeah. And like, you're you know die. how to like forage and like hunt and prepare like meat like that. Like you just, it, it is unsurvivable. I mean, it really is. But anyway, but, but the soundtrack is really good to that movie. Yeah. It's, it's basically all soundtrack. Eddie Vedder. Really good movie. Um, and I'm a Seattle girl, so mm-hmm. Eddie Vedder is like, oh my God, I've seen him in concert so many times. He's awesome. I believe And it. he sits there and like drinks a bottle of wine while he's nice, <laughs> Like right out of the bottle as nice. he's playing. It's pretty awesome. I don't know if he still does that, but the last time I saw him, it, I actually saw him in San Diego <gasps> and I saw him in Seattle, but I saw him in at the um, San Diego State University in the oh, yeah. arena, the basketball arena. And like, it was really cool. It, nice. was, a, it was a great show. Excellent show. If you ever oh, have a chance that. to see Pearl Jam or Eddie Vedder, go because like he's a really good. I know. Good I already missed see. the boat on my dream live show. What was your dream live show? Chris Cornell. Yeah, I saw Chris Cornell. I saw Soundgarden. They are. Uh, it's unreal. Awesome. His that was back is, in the day. His well, he's dead back in now. The, I saw him in the '90s, and that was one of the first concerts I ever saw <sighs> was Soundgarden. It yeah. was phenomenal and they had the real spoon man get up there and like play oh no it was the best the only one that i've missed that i really wish that i could have seen was nirvana oh yeah and by the way the fbi just released all the files on that i saw that did you hear that i I saw that they released the files i haven't looked at them yet i will um but it's really kind of anticlimactic let me just um but it's not the it's not the FBI investigation into his death because they didn't investigate his death. It's like the FBI investigation of him, right? Because it's really not like what you think it is. Yeah. 
it makes you excited because you're like, what? Right. You think, well, you think the FBI like investigated his death because there's a conspiracy that he didn't actually kill himself. But um, again, where is it? Not one for conspiracies. So basically, Rolling Stone came out with this article FBI releases long withheld file on Kurt Cobain. And this, you know, came out this last week. For decades, the government kept a file on conspiracy theories about Cobain's death, which is interesting, right? Oh, it was about his death. Here's what's yeah. in the newly released documents. In the past month, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana have snuck back into the headlines. April 5th marked the 27th anniversary of Cobain's death. Um, wow. And NFT of Cobain's last photo shoot was put on the market, and Nirvana as a group were hit with a copyright infringement lawsuit for alleged unauthorized use of a 1949 illustration on their merch. As announced this week, hmm. six strands of Cobain's hair cut in 1989 will be part of a rock memorabilia auction. And now comes Cobain's Jesus. FBI file. Dun, dun, dun. Don't buy Chris, Kurt, don't don't buy buy Kurt Cobain's hair. hair. Um, periodically, the Federal Bureau of Investigation makes public some of its archives on politicians, entertainers, and other bold-faced names. And quietly last month, for reasons the Bureau has not commented on, the FBI plucked out its file on Cobain and made it available for the first time shortly after it had done some of the paperwork on late mob boss Vito Genovese. The, pa- mm. the file is only about 10 pages. Um, the centerpieces are yeah. two letters sent from names that have been redacted, urging the Bureau to investigate Cobain's 1994 death as a murder rather than a suicide. He shot himself with a rifle, right? Or a shotgun? Which one? Something yeah, like that. a shotgun. Millions of fans around the world would like to see the inconsistency surrounding his death cleared up once and for all, reads another letter from September 2003. The letter cites director Nick Broomfield's Kurt and Courtney doc as an example of similar skepticism. Have you seen uh, that? I watched parts it's of it. Awful. It's awful. Uh, yeah. It's not. Bad. Yeah. The other letter also from a blocked author has was written by hand and dates from 2007. Quote, the police who took up the case were never very serious in investigating it as a murder, but from the beginning insisted on it being a suicide. It reads in part, this bothers me because... His killer is still out there. The writer also cites so-called evidence. Um, There were no prints on the gun he supposedly shot himself with and claims that in Cobain's note, he mentioned nothing about wanting to die except for the part of it that was in another handwriting and appeared to be added at the end. The FBI's responses to the letters sent from different officials at the Bureau, but nearly identical in wording, are also contained in the file. We appreciate your concern that Mr. Cobain may have been the victim of a homicide. Each reads, however, most homicide investigations generally fall within the jurisdiction of state or local authorities. The re- yeah. yeah. So the reply goes on to say that specific facts about a violation of federal law would have to be present for the Bureau to pursue this. Based upon the letters, we're unable to identify any violation of federal law within the investigative jurisdiction of the FBI. And so they're passing on pursuing this. Um, interesting stuff. Um I that documentary he was clearly suicidal. It was on Netflix. I don't know if it's he was still clearly is. suicidal. He, he was yeah. cl- he was clearly suicidal. He had attempted suicide numerous times before. But that that Nick Bloomfield documentary, like it's borderline irresponsible. Yeah, I I like, watched just, a part of it. I think and just was so disgusted I had to turn it off. Yeah, as were many documentaries and, about Cobain. Like they just weren't. They haven't been good. Yeah. There haven't been very many good ones. And the other thing, to, I mean, I know we're completely off topic from the Do Love Pass, but while we're talking about conspiracies, the other thing to keep in mind is, like, there are people that are still affected by those conspiracies. So, like, Courtney Love is still affected by that. Frances Bean is still affected by those rumors that her mom killed her dad, which is a conspiracy. There is no truth to that. So just keep in mind, like, when you're just saying that, that, like, Things like that do actually affect people. Yeah. Just well, something to kind of keep it. The mind. article goes on to say that even stranger, the released pages also include portions of a January 1997 fax sent to the Los Angeles and D.C. offices of the FBI from Crossgrove and Moore Productions, a Los Angeles documentary company that's home to the long-running Unsolved Mysteries series. These released pages include a one-paragraph summation of theories about the case involving Tom Grant, a Los Angeles-based private investigator and former L.A. County Sheriff's deputy, and his suspicions that the suicide ruling was a rush to judgment. The fact sheet claims that Grant has has found a number of inconsistencies, including questions about the alleged suicide note, which Grant believes was a retirement letter to Cobain's fans. So they don't recall much about the original request, but Unsolved Mysteries did ultimately air an episode addressing these theories the same year. Um, so interesting. I don't remember seeing that unsolved mysteries episode and I, I literally watched every single one of them. So that's kind of strange. 
Um, at press time, the FBI did not respond to a Rolling Stone inquiry about the timing of the publication, but the release of the file, Cobain joins a curious list of musicians who have been the subject of FBI surveillance or investigations. They include the notorious B.I.G., the, the Bureau has more than 300 pages on his murder, although the case was closed in 2005. The Monkees for Anti-American Subliminal Message is incorporated <laughs> into their 60s concerts by way of video footage. Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees for a potentially threatening telegram oh. supposedly signed by Brother Gibb, by another Brother Gibb, sent to the law firm representing his then-wife in their divorce proceedings. And John Denver for supposed death threats made against him in 1979. The Cobain file may not be as salacious, but it's a reminder that the FBI's interest in collecting files on musicians didn't stop during the classic rock era. The man had his alternate side, too. Alternative side, too. Interesting. but I, hmm. It makes it sound a lot more interesting than it really is. Yeah. <laughs> it's really pretty I was like, what? I mean, Cobain? What? And read it and was like, no. Right, I know. Wah, wah. <laughs> I know. It's a letdown. There's there's nothing there to that. Anyway, but, but you know, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode all up. All conspiracies ultimately have a logical explanation is the lesson that we're taking home today. This case that we talked about today proves that, right? Yep. Science. Yeah. So, in social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so you can reach out to us there. We will post pictures of the Dyatlov Pass incident, the people involved, and things like that. Um, and we'll also post our show mm-hmm. notes there. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at the Podcast at gmail.com. We'll drop that into the show notes, too. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Awesome.